Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me is my co-host, Alan. We are back. You're looking at your podcast feed right now, and you're saying, wait a minute, is this for real? Is this actually happening? (laughs) And I can tell you without any doubt that it is happening. We are back from our wilderness venture. We Mm -hmm. We have stormed the gates of hell and brought back the keys to life and death. That might be going a little too far, but I think it's how we feel right now. We're excited to be back. We have a lot of announcements, a lot of catching up to do with all of our wonderful listeners. And, uh, you know, without any further ado, let's get into it. Alan, how excited are you to be back? I'm so excited. Um, I'm almost as like, (laughs) what's the word? I'm, I almost have as much of a messianic complex as you do. <laughs> I'm ready. I uh, man, it's been seven months. Seven months, and just hitting record on our our software and stuff, and setting it up. Ah, it feels like it's been a really long time. But man, my my brain and my mind and my heart have been working for the last seven months uh, with stuff that's been happening in the world. Also, readers have been sending stuff in. I got one really nice long response about vegetarianism that I was super excited about and responded to that person. Uh, So it's good to actually get back and do this because I feel like I've been doing it all along. Yes. And you will notice all of our faithful listeners that there is a voice missing and we do have some bad news, but also, you know, good news. It's different news. It's different news. This is what parents do when they talk to their kids, right? Uh, Exactly. (laughs) It's bad news. So unfortunately... Mona is not going to be a regular co-host of the show any longer. She's having some major life transitions and good things are happening in her life. We're excited Very for good her. Things. And she yeah. will she will make her presence known on this episode. We promise you that and we'll get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um but and she'll be a part of episodes in the future. Exactly. She'll be popping mm-hmm. in from time to time. Um but her life is just getting wonderful and uh moving forward and we wish her the best of luck and we're excited yes. every time we have her back. So she has uh, lots of good lots of good work that she's doing right now. And uh I I know I've heard so many people over the years, people I've known personally, you know people in my church and listeners have talked to me and said, "You know, I love your podcast." But I really love that Mona. <laughs> like every time, <laughs> I sure. love that Mona, and I'm like, I love her too. My cousin's amazing. Uh, so I just want to say, I think it's uh, Doctor Seuss who said, "It's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all." Or wait, Doctor Seuss said, "Don't cry because it's over. Be happy because it happened." <laughs> <laughs> I was going to so say that go. first Those one. I don't think that that was. I Dr. don't know if that was Doctor Seuss. <laughs> but hey, I am. I'm grateful for all of the the time and energy and voice that Mona has given, and I'm excited to bring her back on occasionally. Um, but I just wanted to say my gratitude before we moved on. Yes, she has been such an important part of what we've done here, and and honestly, I believe what we will continue to do, uh, just yeah. not as as regular. So that's not to say that you're just stuck with with Alan and I. For those of you that are diehard Mona fans, uh, we will be bringing in other voices. We got a lot of different things planned. Uh, yes. But the number one big change in the show is that we are no longer going to be weekly. Um, we, we Our schedules have also changed and there's a lot of stuff going on. So we will be releasing episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month. So that'll be our new schedule. And uh, stay tuned to the end of the show and we'll announce uh, our show for next time, which is going to be awesome. We have a wonderful uh, interview that I conducted over our break that I'm very I'm excited. So excited. To- if, if you were a youth group kid or an evangelical growing up, you have to stick around because this next episode that comes out, yeah. 
and we'll le- we'll leave it right open there. Open your heart wide open. You have to stay tuned all the way to the end. <laughs> and don't don't. I know what you're thinking right now. You're, you just you started going forward and fast forwarding through this. You better stop because because <laughs> then you miss out on all the good stuff that's about to happen right now. So yeah. So we have been up to quite a bit, and uh, our, our lives have been filled with with good stuff. Do you want to give kind of an update about where you've been at in the seven months, man? Seven months. I've been. I don't know. I don't know anything about child development, but what happens when when a baby reaches seven months? Do they start talking or anything? No, no, no they don't. Like that. No, okay. I mean, <laughs> it's a, seven months is a blur. My girls are four now, blur. and they're just running oh. all over the place. I know it's crazy. Um, but yeah, seven months since we started. For me personally, I've been planning as far as what's happening here. Uh, we do have some episodes recorded of Divine Cinema, and we will be launching that uh, next week. So stay tuned for that. I know that I've had a lot of false starts for some of you that have contacted me personally. Uh, but we we do have some episodes recorded, and we are going to be kicking that off uh, in a week or so. So stay tuned for that. and will keep you updated. And for those of you that don't know, Divine Cinema is where uh, Jeff and a few others review Christian movies, both good and bad. And it's wonderful. Man, I have to say out of everything that this podcast has produced, uh, I listened to a few of those episodes you guys recorded, and I watched the movie ahead of time, and it felt so good. It felt like I was sitting in the theater with people I cared about, eating popcorn, watching <laughs> something. Oh, it's just wonderful. Well, so I'm super you. excited thank about you. that. So that's a different a different uh element like a different podcast right and it's just connected to it's connected to Irenicon. us yeah okay, so if yeah. you go to if you go to our webpage irenicast.com you'll see a thing at the top that says podcasts and then that will be listed uh if you're if you're listening to this on the day of posting which i think is going to be september 6th or 5th um it might not be up yet because i'm doing some background stuff but it will it will be up there shortly and if you want to get a feel for what the show's about you can look at some of our past catalog because it's kind of a it's kind of a spin-off podcast from where we mm-hmm. were at and uh, we strictly when we were doing it on this show we're concentrating on bad christian movies uh and although we will start that way with divine cinema we are actually going to look at really good movies that that highlight faith in film and and the nuanced ways in which it's expressed so i'm excited about that we've been working on the background but our schedules with my other co-host adam and dylan have been a little crazy with summer coming and stuff like that but we will we'll get into that soon and i will make sure that in the show notes for this particular episode, irenacast.com slash 101. I'll put links to all those past Divine Cinema episodes in addition to the Divine Cinema website, which is divinecinema.net. As of right now, we're not in iTunes. We haven't put all that stuff together yet, but we will within the next week. So follow us here at Irenacast, or again, check the webpage divinecinema.net for all the information on how you can keep up when we officially launch, and we will be sure to let you know. Uh, Alan, what about you? What have you been doing during your trek through the wilderness? Oh my goodness! So we had so we recorded for two years and then had a seven month break. And seven months, it may have been a blur, like when you're raising kids, but it feels like a long time for me. <laughs> uh, I've been working on ordination, so I'm getting ordained as a minister after doing like eleven years of ministry. Um, I am getting ordained in the United Church of Christ, and that required like psychological evaluations, mentorships, meeting with a bunch of ministers and lay people in committees, writing papers and like opening up my whole life to all these people to come in and inspect it and talk to the church that I'm in right now. Um, I've been the solo pastor at the church I'm at for a couple of years now, which is a UCC church. And I kind of did things backward. I started working before I got ordained. Usually people go through seminary, get ordained and then find a church. Um, 
but because I'm coming from a different place, <clears throat> there's just been a lot of kind of extra stuff I've had had to do to get to where I'm at. And it looks like there's one more requirement, but I might be getting ordained this year. And that'll be a wonderful thing. I'm going to wear a robe for the first time in my life. I've never preached in a robe or wore like a stole, those cool little embroidered things. Uh, but I'm going to do it <laughs> and see what it feels like. So the question is, the awkward question, are you going to be naked under that robe? <laughs> naked. <laughs> Weren't you the one who was preaching without shoes at some point in your life? Because you wanted to bare your soul? Isn't that right? Yes. Do you still do that? I I haven't done that. Actually, you know what? I thought about that the other week. So what Alan's referring to is when I used to preach, I used to just take my shoes off. You know, not as a stereotypical, well, I'm standing on holy ground because I'm preaching <laughs> the word of God. But just as a if, – if you know me in my personal life, I'm not um, – I'm not a vulnerable person. I don't share a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm pretty reserved. And I realized early on in my preaching that my greatest tool was not the knowledge that I had, but the vulnerability that I was able to communicate from the pulpit. Uh, because I think it's, you know, personally, I think that some of the, the biggest damages that have happened in church life and church culture have been this um, this perceived unattainable holiness that leaders set off and it makes their their fall or their mistakes all the much you know egregious because they've set up this unrealistic thing and i didn't like that and that was kind of my way my symbolic way to combat that but no i don't i haven't done that in a while i'm the opposite i'm like i'm the kid next door you know <laughs> extremely accessible and vulnerable uh my vulnerable little heart is open to the whole world constantly so it's going to be nice to actually put some robes on and remind myself of the seriousness, <laughs> not the seriousness of what I do, but whatever, it's going to be interesting. Um, so not only have I been working on ordination and I'm getting extremely close, like I've been approved by uh, the Northern California and Nevada conference of the United church of Christ. Uh, officially, they made a recommendation to the local ministers to, uh, you know, they, they vetted me, did all the, the legwork on that. Um, not only am I getting ordained, but I am doing working on a side thing. Um, I and a three other ministers from the area. This is not official yet. You've heard it here first. <laughs> are working on a brick and mortar version of what the podcast does. So if you're in the Sacramento area, the greater Sacramento area, um, we're going to be doing like a, maybe a pub group at first. Um, we have a couple different ideas, but we're working on creating some sort of in person group processing for people who come from evangelical or fundamentalistic backgrounds who have maybe been hurt or maybe are just excited to process theology in a new way uh, together. So we're going to be doing that at some point and we're working on it. It's getting, getting pretty close, but pretty much that's what I've been doing for the last seven months. I've also been through some really hard stuff um, and I'll record a little bit and add that at the very end uh, after Mona talks about the topic uh, on this episode, this episode's kind of a mish mishmash, right? A bunch of different things thrown together. So I'll have a little segment where I explain more about what's been going on in my life. For sure. Yeah. This episode's definitely something that we did not throw together. I we never throw anything together on this show. We put a lot of, um, really honestly, we put a lot of heart and thought into the things we put forward. But since this is our first show back in seven months, we want to re reward those of you that have been just <laughs> seriously continuing to contact yeah. us and say, where are you guys mm -hmm. coming back soon? Is everything going forward? And uh, this is kind of like a, if you're, if you're new to the show, we hope that you stick around. And if you are so excited that this is in your feed again, uh, we just want to catch you up, which is why we're taking a little bit more time here in the beginning. And, um, during our break, we had a wonderful email from a listener that, uh, 
Moda was just compelled to record something and respond to it. And we're going to, we're going to have that for you right after this. And then after that, Alan's going to share a little bit about what he's been going through on his personal journey during this hiatus. And then we will close with um, just to kind of let you know where we're headed in the future and announce our special uh, guest interview for next week. Um, so the, the email and question that we got from our listener is about uh, specifically regarding abstinence. And we all we all remarked when we got the, the feedback that we were surprised after 100 episodes. This is not a topic that we um, that we covered because it seems so obvious. It seems like such an obvious evangelical issue to talk about. Uh, well, it's surprising on the one hand and not surprising on the other. I mean, we're family. So it's kind of weird to talk about abstinence. And but, you know, we've we've never shied away from any topic. So it is a little weird that we never covered it. And I'm glad someone brought it up. Yeah. And I think we'll definitely cover it more fully with a, with a full episode in the future. But, uh, it, the, the, the words that, that Mona has on this subject are really good. And we wanted to make sure that we shared it and put it on the podcast and they exactly. Are. Yeah. And made sure that she had a presence on this, this first episode back. So without any further ado, here are uh, Mona's thoughts and she'll recap the email that we received from our listener. everybody this is mona from my renacast we got a really interesting email recently from somebody named anna and i just took it upon myself to record a little thing because i thought that this deserved response and thank you so much anna for writing to us we're really really thankful for people who engage the show and ask hard questions anna writes Thank you guys so much for this podcast. I've been listening to a couple of episodes and uh, showing me that I'm not alone in my thoughts. And she writes, I just got kicked out of being allowed to serve in my church for not signing the abstinence paragraph because I don't consider it theologically neither important or right and gave up living according to it some months ago. Can you please do an episode on the topic of abstinence, please? I would love to hear what your experiences are. Love, Anna, from A Place in Europe. So great to hear that we've got listeners all over the world. And uh, I thought that <laughs> until recently, and it, maybe until Anna's letter, that the whole abstinence thing was a pretty distinctively American craze. But I think, I, and I, I don't know the history of uh, when, you know, the, something like signing an abstinence agreement for church ministry, you know, I don't know when that started, where that started. Um, I, I know in my own personal experience, uh, we were very much on the true love's weight stuff on the, um, I, I don't know if any of you read the book, I kissed dating goodbye, but I read it and I read it so hard <laughs> that I started teaching other kids in my youth group about it as a teen. Oh God, spare me. Uh, and there've been a lot of people who've come out and even the author of that book has come out recently and like apologized for how the social impact of this idea that if you really love someone and want to marry them, you will not basically not touch them or have any sort of sexual relationship with them before you're married. So abstinence, I think we first need to establish that it's on a spectrum, right? It's on a spectrum of people who say it's not appropriate to kiss before you're married, that you should be completely and utterly chaste and modest and even having any 
uh, lustful, uh, even have any sexual desire for your partner is, you know, verges on lust and it's very dangerous. And then there's, you know, the very other side of abstinence where you don't have uh, just vaginal intercourse. You do other stuff, you know, fill in the blank there. But uh, you're considered quote unquote pure because you save that one thing for your marriage night. Now, I have to pause here and tell you the reason I'm doing this alone is because Alan, Jeff, and I are related. Alan's my cousin. Jeff's related to the family. I mean, we're, we all grew up together. And it's just, I, it's just weird to talk about sex with those guys. I love them dearly. And I think we could probably do it because we're mature adults. But, you know, it's just, it, I just thought it would be better <laughs> if I took it upon myself and recorded this episode, this mini episode. So what can I say about abstinence? As somebody who was hook, line, and sinker on the train of that. And who, you know, and my folks, my, my parents are Pentecostal ministers. They really, you know, encouraged us to be on that train as well. And I think it's because they had four daughters and, you know, nobody wants to watch their daughter get pregnant at 16, you know, and, and watch them struggle. So I think that we have to suss out here, what is the intent of religious communities to encourage young people to be abstinent? And I'm going to focus specifically in this episode on women, although men also, you know, young boys and um, young queer people also feel the effects of this teaching. Um, I I think this comes out of a long history of trying to keep young girls in particular safe in the church and young couples who don't have the resources to deal with teen pregnancy. And it does in these communities, in the mind of these communities, feel safer to just say, don't do it and you'll 100% not get pregnant, you know? And, and so that that's a first. It's, it's not so much a moral concern, it's a very practical concern. I can be sympathetic to that. I, for one, am very glad that I was a fully grown adult before I started having a sexual um, life. Um, but I do have to say that I was on the, uh, the side, of, and many of us find ourselves in this place, I was on the side of don't have sex until you're married. So my wedding night was my first really sexual, fully sexual experience. And had I, and if you listen to the show, you will know that my, my marriage ended after four years. And I, I am pretty confident that had I not had this abstinence teaching in my life, I would never have gotten married to this person in the first place because we simply weren't compatible. My ex is a great person, but we just didn't work. Um, and so I think that a lot of people get married so that they can have sex in church communities. And that strikes me as really tragic. That strikes me as devaluing marriage. And I don't think you can tell people don't be excited to have sex, right? So I think the abstinence system as a whole tends to devalue marriage because people rush into it because they think that that gives them the license to have full sexual uh, leeway with their partner. And a lot of times these these uh, systems of theology are taught with this idea that you own your partner, there's a property element. And I want to speak to that in particular because, you know, first there's the pregnancy, there was a practical concern of just maturity question. But then there's a deeper question of property and ownership. And the ancient Near East context in which the Bible was written women were historically throughout 
all biblical times, even into the New Testament times, even though this started to soften and notions of equality and egalitarianism started to emerge in Paul's theology, uh, you know, submit to one another, there is still a, a concept overriding in culture that women belong to men, that they are the property of men. Uh, you can see this in, in Bible passages like women should stay silent and ask their husbands questions at home. There's an idea that women belong to men. And this comes out of uh, cultural constructs in many, many cultures that prize virginity as a form of currency. I know that sounds strange. So let me break that down a little bit. If female sexuality can be uh, codified and claimed as completely pure, then that sexuality becomes highly prized for bartering, for making political agreements, for economic power. Uh, you know, this was back in, it comes from back in the day where you can trade your daughter for three goats and your family's livelihood, you know, you, you, you let go of a daughter, so to speak. I'm being t totally facetious because this is a horrifying practice uh, on any modern standards. Uh, you let go of a daughter, but you know, the whole family gets to eat for another two years. So in survival tribalistic mindset, that logic I guess makes sense, but in today's terms, it's it's barbaric and horrifying behavior and practice. So we have to understand the the evolution of cultural constructs of property as have evolved throughout time. And the closer that civilizations have gotten to democracy and to freedom and to considering everybody as people, including women, including you know, people of color, including slaves, including queers, including any transgender folks, including anybody, uh, that everyone, every human being, every sentient adult deserves basic human rights, which is, you know, that concept has only been around in society for a couple of hundred years, um, that those notions of property start to get dismantled. And so, I think we have to ask ourselves within evangelical thought, within Christian communities, within within uh, moralistic communities, how much of these ideas of controlling and maintaining abstinence and, and a pure sexuality, a, a sexuality that's never been touched, a hymen that's never been broken, how much of that is related to who owns that woman in particular? Who does her sexuality belong to? This is still indicative of in our in our ceremonies when the father walks the bride-to-be down the aisle and gives her away in marriage. He hands her hand to the new husband and, and symbolically gives the property from one male of the house to another male of the household. I know that sounds weird if you've never thought about it that way, but it's so deeply ingrained in our thinking about marriage that we still haven't unraveled all of it. So, so abstinence. What what does it do? Uh, you know, besides preventing pregnancy, uh, besides showing property, there was also a concept in Judaic thought, in particular, that uh, that Jews and Jewish people and early Israelites maintained a concept of cultural purity, and this set them apart from other people. This is a lot of people get confused by uh, Levitical passages, for example, that say, on one hand don't eat shellfish. It's an abomination. On the other hand, if a man lays with a man uh, as if with a woman, that is an abomination. Why are those two things held in the same weight, in the same ban? Uh, by contemporary standards, that doesn't quite add up to a lot of people. But if you think about it in terms of 
purity as cultural identity. Not eating shellfish was what culturally bound early Jewish peoples together, that they had a shared experience and that they had these purity codes and these cultural codes to keep themselves clean. Part of it was hygienic. Part of it was really rudimentary understanding because of how science works and how disease spreads. But another part of it was cultural identity. And you know who your neighbor is. You know who your family is, your blood, your, your tribe. Uh, and you know who your tribe is not based on how you practice and what you eat and how you take care of your body. So, there's another element. So there's the practical maturity safety element. There's the property element. And then there's the purity, the cleanliness element that is not, which we now know because we know that shellfish for the most part is safe to eat. And, you know, if you, if you have moral, uh, religious, traditional preferences not to eat it, then sure. But scientifically we know that shellfish is safe. It's not bad for you. It, you know, if, if it's consumed properly. So, so when did Christians start eating shellfish is the question. And I asked that question because uh, it's a purity code and purity relates to the question of abstinence and saving yourself for marriage. Even the, even the term saving yourself for marriage, think about that soteriologically, meaning a theology of salvation, saving yourself for marriage. I digress. Shellfish uh, and all manner of other purity customs were really came into fire in the early church. If you read the book of Acts, there's a lot of debate about, you know, do we circumcise people or not? Do we eat pork or not? Do we act like Gentiles or not? Do we let Gentiles in our community or not? And because Paul uh, wrote the majority of the New Testament, which was later canonized, meaning it was put in the Bible, uh, Paul's theology one out historically. And Paul had the idea that we call universalism in theological circles. So I'm not talking about uh, a particular denomination like uh, Unitarian Universalism, and I'm not talking about necessarily uh, universal salvation or anything like that, but I'm, I'm talking about a, the a theological philosophical term called universalism that basically opened up or unlocked this religious order to people who weren't born into a Jew Jewish lineage. And this happened by the grafting in, quote unquote, grafting is the language Paul uses of this other branch of the lost tribes of Israel, or however you want to call it, into the tree of the root of Christ. And so you could make this one big happy religious family that could transcend uh, global identities and political orders. And thus, after Paul got done uh, kind of urging the early church toward universalism to include more people because of this transnational quality. You would call it transnational. This is of course before cities, uh, nation states were, were born really, but because of this, uh, transcendent quality, this universal quality that says anyone can ascribe to this faith. And this faith has morals and codes that go beyond any political authority. Christianity became incredibly dangerous to Roman Caesars who wanted, uh, who wanted basically a cult of worship around their political reign. And actually, if you want a fun internet wormhole, you can go look up all the parts of the New Testament that are borrowed from Caesar worship. A lot of Revelation actually is written in coded Caesar worship terms. So it's it reads like a, a praise, a, a psalm to Caesar. Like, for example, the words, the blood of the lamb uh, comes from an ancient Roman mystery cult uh, uh, that's that circles around Caesar worship. So a lot of the language we're familiar with today, we don't, we don't realize actually comes from 
empire language, empire speak. So universalism claimed that all things are clean. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols, even though that was considered, we considered totally horribly an abomination to most Israelites in history. All of a sudden, early church leaders were claiming, yes, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as it doesn't make your neighbor stumble. Like if everyone's cool with it, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Those idols are dead. There's only one true God that transcends all political orders, that rules the universe, rules the cosmos. And you get this very cosmic, triumphant, uh, overcoming God that that doesn't just stick to a particular location, but that just kind of goes beyond. So, So if all things are clean, the question arises, what did Paul mean when he talks about things like porneia? There really is no discussion of premarital sex in the Bible. There, there's not, there's not, I mean, the closest we get to, is like to understanding like kind of what the social implications would have been for Mary had she become pregnant out of wedlock. And uh, her purity throughout Christian history has been really revered, right? Uh, she, again, saving herself for marriage, saving herself. There's a, there's a concept that Mary kind of, uh, redeemed herself or she, she, through her faith and through her purity, through her integrity, she actually like justified herself and, and, and was kind of like a second savior. Uh, that's a really interesting theological concept to explore that that's directly tied to her sexuality into her womb that she kind of, uh, in some theologian thought undid the sin of Eve, uh, that we'll talk about in a minute. So, so porneia, what does porneia mean? If you've been in the abstinence camp at all, you will have heard probably this word floating around. It's a Greek word that some people translate to mean fornication. If you actually read biblical scholarship, they, we just really don't know what it means. It's a pretty big blanket term, but a lot of the instances in the New Testament, if you want a fun study, get a concordance out and go look up this word. And you'll see that a lot of these instances talk about property, you know, either paying for sex as in hiring a prostitute or, you know, uh, somebody in my congregation slept with his father's uh, mistress. What do we do? You know, so it really speaks to the fact that these early church communities are trying to figure out, okay, if we're going to be universal, are we still following Jewish purity codes? Are we following Roman purity codes? Are we are we making up our new codes? Like, wh- how do we know where the boundaries are? How do we know where the lines? How do we keep an ordered society and ordered communities where people can live in peace and harmony? and not take each other's property and not take each other's wives. So pornea really is, um, you can call it disordered sexuality probably before you can call it fornication. And what I mean by that is disordered sexuality. So I, I don't think you will find an instance in the Bible where this word is used between people who love each other and are about to get married or who are committed to each other and you know, are expressing themselves sexually. It's referring to things that are illicit and, and like really uh, lustful and, and would be considered pushing the boundaries of property lines. So, uh, you know, with, with Paul's theology opened up this big can of worms of, you know, we, we can let go of some of these purity codes that, that, showed that our identity lied within Israelite culture and Israelite faith in the Yahweh God because we're replacing it kind of, so to speak. I mean, this is one interpretation, but we're replacing it with this faith in Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus, you're in, you're in the club, you're in the community. You don't need to follow these other rules. You don't need to stop eating meat. You you don't even have to circumcise yourself. If you have faith, that's it. That's that's any, everything you'll ever need. Game over. You follow Jesus. You're in the way of Christ you know, that's it. That's it. You're done. You're done. So, so, uh, 
so this this virginal stuff that's been resurrected um there are there are talks about you know temple virgins in the new testament there are talks of uh which probably also could mean young women so we don't know for sure whether pure sexuality was highly prized when i mean pure sexuality i mean like people who've never like uh, uh participated in the sexual acts um likely it was because it was the ancient near east and because again we're living you know in in tribalistic culture oftentimes oftentimes overwhelmingly so female sexuality is prized as a commodity as you know i have the purest virgins i have all these daughters who have never been touched by a man therefore they are more highly prized and more rare you know so it's it's seen as a mark of status it's seen as a mark of political and economic power in a society where women are seen as property, even if it's a very soft version of property, even if women ha- seem to have a voice and even if women seem to be equal, at the end of the day, in women who claim to have knowledge and, and authority and women claim to possess their own bodies, as in my father or my husband doesn't own me and my body and decide how I get to use it, but I do. Uh, Those women are seen historically as incredibly dangerous. This has been 2000 years of terror uh, until very recently on any woman who would claim to use her body for her own purposes. Uh, And and that is, that is one-to-one equated with the sin of Eve and seen as actually evil and witchy. Uh, So we're in a very new modern time when this has started to be unraveled. It's only been 50 years since the free, 60 years since the free love movement when women overwhelmingly stood up and said, we're not doing this anymore. We're not playing this game. We want to decide what we can do with our bodies and when, and it's not none of your business that that is new. And that is completely and utterly considered apostasy for some religious communities. And it's very offensive to them. I want to argue that it's not the same for men who may or may not be abstinent. Uh, We still have the cheeky term, oh, that guy's just sowing his wild oats. You know, if he gets a woman pregnant, oopsie. I'm I'm using an extreme example, but in a lot of communities, the repercussions for a man who quote unquote messes up versus a woman who, uh, you know, besmirches her purity, are, are the consequences socially are so different. You know, if you if you ever see a community, a couple in the community um, who, who this happens for, it, it's it's just a different thing. So we have to say that that this still falls along a really strong gender line. But I, I just I want to say, though, that human beings are not made to repress ourselves sexually. It's just not how we work. And in communities that have high monastic rates, a lot of times have really high uh, predatory and pornea rates, you could say, have have high rates of, of illicit sexuality, of abusive sexuality, of predatory sexuality. Uh, you can see this in the scandal in, in the Catholic Church and the priests who still have yet to be admonished or, or disrobed. So we, we, have to, we have to examine this idea that that repression leads to sexual violence and psychological work in the last hundred years has told us this. I bring this up because celibacy and abstinence go hand in hand. I have very well-meaning and wonderful family members who are in the camp of, uh, for gay people that, and I'm sorry if this triggers anybody, but that, uh, 
that gay people are good and loved and made in the image of God. And they may even, this is what they would teach that they may even be born that way. They may even be born gay, but at the end of the day, uh, they should be celibate and they should hold out for the grace that God would allow them to kind of overcome their gayness and fall in love with someone of the opposite gender and get married because marriage is between a man and a woman and marriage has this salvific sort of quality. Marriage redeems marriage brings you closer to God. This is what's believed. Um, and so I, I take tremendous issue with this because to, to recommend that anyone be celibate is really, really, really dangerous to their mental and physical and I think spiritual well-being. So I think the same goes in some senses for people who are abstinent. Are you supposed to get abstinent if you never get married? If you never find somebody, are you supposed to be celibate your entire life? Uh, again, it's this idea that we are sort of inherently sinful and that our sexuality can't be good unless we have this kind of big rubber stamp of a marriage license to make it holy. And I think that this causes so much shame for so many people. And I don't think this is what God intended for teachings on sexuality or human sexuality when God designed this. I've met so many people who who well into adulthood are just tremendously and tremendously ashamed of their bodies and they can't enjoy sex. They can't enjoy union with their partner because they see themselves as dirty. They see themselves as corrupt and lustful and they can't get past this and actually be in the moment and enjoy sexuality because they, they have this idea that they are evil you know, that they are, that they are sinful. And this comes from a theologian named Augustine really early on, one of the earliest theologians, uh, who, who made a huge impact in, in Christian theology. Augustine is credited with the primary theology of the fall. And I'm going to simplify it here. So if you're an Augustinian scholar, I apologize, but Augustine is responsible, primarily is credited with this idea that we are all fallen and that it's uh i'm i'm going to summarize him and a few other people who said that it's the sin of the original sin of of adam but in particular eve uh, who tempted adam who tempted adam to eat the apple that her temptation her sin her original betrayal of god was passed down through every single womb that's ever been and so through Eve, all of humanity has fallen. Sin has entered the entire human race. And there's been nobody but Jesus who has been born, who has ever uh, been pure. And the reason that's true is because Jesus was born of a virgin who first became pure before, or who remained pure before she, uh, she, she gave birth and she conceived. So this might sound familiar if you're in, in, in fundamentalistic or evangelical communities. So Augustine, you know, taught that this, this basically sin, your sin nature is an STD. Everyone's got it. And, you know, you can be redeemed through faith in Christ and through practicing love, but you know, it, it, it takes some work. So we have based centuries of Christian theology of sexuality on Augustine. And even if his words make sense, I think we need to understand the context in which he was writing was one that was fraught with shame. This abstinence stuff pulls from that. It pulls from this idea of the fall. It pulls from the idea that your sexuality is 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 overwhelmingly shameful except for a very marginal window. You know, I would say I've met people who have experienced extremely unholy sexuality within marriage. 
I've met people who've been abused by their partners. I've met people who have been raped by their partners, their, their, their spouses in the marriage bed. And so I got to tell you, if, if sexuality in marriage can be unholy and abusive and sinful and wrong, then why does it not stand a reason that sexuality outside of marriage can be holy and good and loving and right? I just don't, I don't see how marriage makes a magical bubble. Even if you have a sacramental view, even if you believe that God transmutes grace through the sacrament of marriage, you know, as, as some more liturgical or um, Anglican folks might believe. And I was in that camp for a while. Uh, I, I just don't, I don't see how you can make a ban and draw a hard line on that. I think we need to go back to what Jesus said, that you'll know it by its fruit if this sexuality is producing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If this if this sexuality is producing something wonderful and meaningful in your life, but it doesn't have the marriage stamp on it, so what? If you've never been told that your sexuality is good, I'm here to tell you that it's good. It's good no matter who says it's good or not? You need to know that internally. And again, take what I've said with a grain of salt, because I've been really hurt by this theology personally. I, I sh- My first marriage probably shouldn't have happened, but it did, you know, and it did because I wanted to get married and have sex. I, I wanted, I was, I had sex on the brain. I, 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 <laughs> It wasn't all, that wasn't all of it, but that was a big factor. That was a big factor in the fact that I got married in eight months of meeting somebody. I got married so fast and so young when I was just barely out of college. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I wanted. And one of the most liberating things that I've ever done, one of the, I think the most healthy things that I've ever done was to start dating casually after I got divorced. Um, It wasn't all healthy. I made some mistakes, but I would say for the most part, I learned what I like and I learned what kind of people I'm drawn to and I learned what kind of sexuality gives me life. Uh, and I did that th- through safely having dating around and having partners. You know, it, it, if that's not for you, that's fine. I'm not here to push that on you, but I'm telling you, here's the testimony of one person who's found a lot of life in, in exploring sexuality outside of marriage. So, just because you don't ascribe to abstinence doesn't mean that you don't have a moral code. And that's both in the negative. So I'll say that in the positive. You can have a tremendous moral code and not ascribe to abstinence theology. You can have a tremendous theology of sexuality and not ascribe to abstinence theology. Especially not abstinence theology is going to make you write down on a piece of paper that you're not going to have sex before marriage, like some kind of legal contract. Like, what is this? century we're living in. I don't, I can understand why fundamentalistic communities uh, feel the need to batten down on morality and to tighten the hatches and become more zealous when they perceive that the world is getting more worldly and more secular and more free lovey. I was in that camp for a long time. I mean, I was pretty fundamentalistic until I was like mid twenties. So I understand that mindset. I was in that mindset for a long time. And, and the idea is that the more sinful the world becomes, the, the the closer we are to the end of days or whatever, you want to fill in the blank there. Um, you have to understand that that kind of teaching, that kind of fear-based teaching is bolsters communities and tightens them and, and gets people to batten down the hatches on following moral codes because you don't want to be like the world. It's that it's that age old idea that our identity is rooted in our purity practices. That's a, that's a 4,000 year old idea. 
with all of the scandals we've had in the last many years, maybe even since the dawn of the church, I mean, there's been so many people who have been hurt sexually in the church, have been hurt by these teachings, have been hurt by being shoved into marriages that are not right for them or that are uh, sexually exploitative, uh, who have been condemned when they express their sexuality outside of marriage, uh, people who've been abused by by leaders in the church and scandals that have come out. I just think that the church has little place to be making people sign covenants. And I think that the church does does and should not have a monopoly on sexuality. The church should not own sexuality, just like people should not own each other's sexuality. If I sound passionate and angry, it's because I am, and I'll own that. And again, I'm not an expert. Take everything I say with a grain of salt. I'm speaking from personal experience. I'm speaking from having a master's of divinity and studying this stuff, studying the Greek, studying the Hebrew, looking at historical theologians and figures who have made an interesting impact on this stuff. And uh, I see the holiness in in non-traditional sexuality. I see in uh, some of my friends who are in polyamorous relationships that are tremendous communicators and tremendously caring of each other. And some of my gay friends are leading the charge in, in creating consent culture and trying to combat rape and abuse. And I think we have to start thinking out of the box about this stuff. And no, I am not talking about uh, erasing all lines and making child marriage legal and making bestiality legal or whatever the arguments that people say, that's ridiculous, okay? There is such a thing as a, a, a moral code of sexuality, but it doesn't have to look like the things that you've been taught. I, I think everyone should have the right and everyone does have the right to determine for themselves to determine based on how they read the Bible as been read through time, how they read current views on the Bible and what we can take from the Bible and what we can leave from the Bible because it's etched in this really old culture and really old understandings of science that are really irrelevant and nonsensical today. Um, I think that everyone has the right to decide for themselves what feels loving, truly loving and being honest with yourself. I know people who do, you know, one night stands and who, you know, date on Tinder and stuff. Okay. I've dated on Tinder. Not going to lie. <laughs> but some of the cultural practices of the world today are so unbounded and I think incredibly abusive and unhealthy. So I'm not advocating for just do whatever you want, whenever you want. I think that there is such a healthy medium and I think that the church and the world can really learn from each other in some cases. Uh, so that conversation is really vital, but I think it should be a conversation that no one should be telling anyone else, uh, you know, what health, healthy sexuality looks like, but it, it's, it's a negotiation. It's, it's a, it's a dialogue. So see the holy, know the fruit Anna, I applaud you for thinking for yourself and for deciding what you think about this stuff and for not participating, even though it cost you a lot in your church community. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm so sorry that people feel that they can they can encapsulate human sexuality and and create this dogmatism, this legalism by signing a piece of paper and therefore 
game over. I think that's actually really lazy and kind of cowardly that you, you force people into these tiny little boxes and tell them what to believe and what to think without actually training critical thinkers, without actually engaging people where they're at, without actually exploring what love really is because a piece of paper just ain't going to do it. Sexuality is beautiful and deserves more than that. Welcome to the segment where it is just me, Alan O'Brien, your friend, as one of my seminary professors used to say, to just us chickens here. Um, I don't know exactly what that meant. I uh, wanted to just talk about where I've been in the last couple years. Some of you know my story. Many do not. Um, I feel like this is important to talk about because I've opened up pretty intimately over the last two, over the last three years, doing the podcast for two years and then taking a break. I've shared my story all along and who I am is pretty transparent. <laughs> and so I, I feel like this is important. Just quickly, I, a couple of years ago, um, I was married for 10 years. And uh, at, at one point, a couple of years ago, we had a miscarriage and that was super painful and a difficult thing to go through. Anyone who's had that experience kind of knows what it's like. And then about a year and a half ago, started going through a divorce process and separation and, and getting divorced. And that's been a really hard thing on me. I mean, I, I feel like I've been through quite a bit in these last couple of years that have, I use the word unmade a lot, kind of unmade me and, and who I am and what I think. And I've been in the process of being remade. <laughs> the core of who I am really hasn't changed. Uh, I love ministry. I feel called to it. But a lot of the other parts of my life were built on the fact that I've been married since I was 19. So it's been difficult and good. I've learned a heck of a lot. I used to do counseling with people in my church who would t talk to me about their divorce. And I, I think I could empathize before I went through it, but... <laughs> There's things, there's things I've learned. I mean, nobody wants to be a divorced person. I never thought about that, but for some reason, I guess I held just some preconceived notions about people who have been through it. But I don't think anyone wakes up and thinks, oh, I want to be a divorced person. It's not something that anyone looks forward to. Um, and I never thought I would be, but here I am. And this is, this is now a part of my story. Um, I also learned about the idea, ideas about like everything changes. <laughs> there was one point where Jeff and Mona, I took a little bit of a break and then we recorded our last episode, episode 100 and just seeing them a little bit older because we don't usually use a web camera, but we used a web camera then and uh, realizing like everything changes. I had this big existential crisis, like, all oh, my friends are going to die. <laughs> Nothing's going to remain the same sitting in my sanctuary while it was open, uh, while it was empty, except for me and these thoughts. And now it's been kind of a while. And I, I, I hear that you're not supposed to necessarily share or minister from these open bleeding wounds, but more to speak from your scars. And I'm at a point where 
stuff is scarring up a little bit and I feel like I can talk about it. Um, yeah. So the cool thing about this podcast is that Jeff and I we're related because he's my brother-in-law or it has been for the last, um, 10 or 11 years. And, uh, he has been there since I was like 18 years old. Uh, when I started dating his sister and him and his wife have been such a massive part of my life and, uh, my makeup of who I am that to be able to continue doing this podcast together, I think is a really cool, just testimony to friendship and brotherhood and, uh, frankly, ministry partnership and being, uh, both ministers who are called to work with people and, uh, listen and do the good work, uh, that we now find in our progressive space. So all, all of that, um, to say that I'm back and I'm sure that that part of my story is going to influence a lot of what I talk about in the future and feel free to share your story with me of loss or difficulty. Um, everybody has it <laughs> and it looks different from person to person and, um, it has made me more open and even more approachable than I was before. If that's even possible. Anyway, I thought that this was important to share as we jump back into things. Cheers. So this has definitely been an irregular episode, but I think a wonderful episode nonetheless. And uh, before we fully close out, first, I just want to say again, I can't say it enough. We can't say it enough. Thank you so much for uh, being a listener of the show. And we hope that we continue to bring you know meaningful and hopeful and helpful content to you as we continue on. Although it won't be as regular as before, we still are putting just as much work and effort into uh, what we're doing here. And we're excited. We're excited for the future of the show and all of the things that we have planned. We have the, just this list of brainstorming things that we can't wait to start rolling out and implement into the show. Yeah. For everybody that has been listening to our backlog of episodes and emailing us, uh, this is what makes this is what makes it. I mean, it's one thing to talk into the air and actually process with each other. I would do this if nobody listened. I would talk to Jeff and Mona has been a wonderful conversation partner. I've changed and it's molded and shaped me, but really it's it's uh the the people who are listening and responding that really make this worth it. And uh you have my appreciation as well and I look forward to more conversations with y'all in the future. And that's a big part of where we want to move forward in the future is we really want to create more and more opportunities for everyone to have more feedback and create more conversation. And uh, we're looking forward to that. So we will be back in two weeks. So again, the first and third Tuesday of every month we will be posting. And next week I had the wonderful privilege of interviewing someone that I've been a fan of for the (laughs) longest time. Like there's very few people that I was a fan of um, when it comes to, uh, I guess, Christian personalities or, or quote unquote Christian celebrities that maintained people I was a fan of after my transition into more of a progressive view of Christianity. And <laughs> this person is one of them, the one and only Jennifer Knapp. I 
some of you, you're, you're probably thinking like, who's that? And others of you, you may be just as excited and as giddy as I am and was to be able to do this interview. So she's definitely a bridge character for me too. (laughs) I feel so good because if you were like me as a youth group kid, you grew up listening to her music on wow worship CDs, or maybe you had a poster in your room that had all of the like Christian versions of secular music. And she's like the Alanis Morissette of Christianity or something like that. Uh, but she, she, I, I feel connected to my younger self when I think about Jennifer Knapp. That was so wonderful. Yes. And, I'm excited. And it, it is a wonderful interview. She is so gracious and so open with her journey, and uh, which is very similar to the journeys that many of us had as far as trying to find a new context for um, for your faith. And hers, the catalyst being her coming out and uh, moving forward and being more of an advocate for LGBTQ communities. And uh, it's a wonderful interview. I had so much fun doing it, and I can't wait to share it with you all in the next couple of weeks. So that'll do it for us this week. We hope that you're excited, just as excited as we are, although I don't know how possible that is because I'm like shaking in my chair right now uh, that we are back. So if you enjoy what you hear and you want to support the show, check out all the ways you can do that at irenacast.com slash support. If you'd like to comment on this show in the show notes, you can do that at irenacast.com slash 101. And there you'll find all the links to all the things that we've talked about in this particular episode. As mismatched as it was, hopefully you are um, filled with joy and hope <laughs> as we move forward. I know I keep hitting that over and over again, but I just, I'm excited. I don't know if it's coming off. Excited but, is good. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. We'll see you next time. <laughs>